scripture reading is found in Proverbs 12.25. And would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Proverbs 12.25. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression but a good word makes it glad. May God have a blessing to the reading of this word. Seated, Pastor. Well, good morning. In this sermon today, I'm going to be talking about anxiety. I'm going to also be talking about depression. And I'm going to be talking about the Bible as it relates to cognitive behavior therapy. I'm going to talk about anxiety, about depression about what the Bible has to say about cognitive behavior therapy and the principles that form the foundation for it, and then also how these principles can help us to better understand the character of God as opposed to having a misunderstanding about God's character. But first, we've got to take some time to uh, make mention of this. If you are blessed by this message, then I invite you, especially in our social media uh, world out there, whether YouTube or um, Facebook or whatever you're watching, if you're blessed by this message, please hit the like button. If you want to hear more messages like this, then on our website, please hit the subscribe button. I have two up there. One is the Middletown Portland SDA Church website where you can see this. And then my own personal YouTube channel, it's called Path of Prophecy, where you'll find many of these sermons to catch up also. Then you can also click on the notification button so that you'll be notified when a new message comes out. And then please, we'd love to hear from you. So please leave your comments in the section and uh, the comment section. And if you have a friend or a family member who you think would be blessed by this particular message, then by all means, please share this with them. And last but not least, let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And in this closing weekend of the month of May 2022, when the nation of the United States is hurting and grieving over the loss, the tragic loss, not only of these little children and the school teachers, in, um, in Texas, and even the perpetrator, seeing the tragedy that unfolded with a human life like this, but also for those victims in Buffalo, New York, who suffered recently the similar tragedy of a shooting like this. And so, Father, we are aware that May is Mental Health Awareness Month. We need to understand these problems better, and it's my prayer that the light that comes from your word would be able to bring peace to the hearts and the minds that are filled with anxiety and depression. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have to talk about this because anxiety and depression are on the rise. I was in our local grocery store just a few weeks ago, and as I was checking out in the checkout line, there it was, one of the magazines in the magazine racks. The magazine headline says, Dealing with Depression. Depression and anxiety are on the rise. We have to talk about it. It is affecting everybody 
in the United States of America. You can see it even in the New York Times headlines. This was an online article. It's life or death, the mental health crisis among United States teens. In fact, these two shootings that I had mentioned in prayer, the one in Buffalo, New York, and the one in Texas this week, both of them were committed by teenagers. If we don't talk about it, nobody else will. We have to talk about it, okay? We need to talk about anxiety and depression because anxiety and depression are two of the most common forms of mental illness. Anxiety and depression are on the increase and our lack of awareness and our inability to effectively address this issue is proving disastrous for families, for communities, and even the nation alike. Now let's listen to what the Bible has to say about anxiety and depression. The Bible reads, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. So here's the idea. When anxiety is left untreated, it becomes a gateway to depression. Do you understand? When we are filled with anxiety and we don't address the issue as to what is affecting us, that becomes the doorway or the gateway to depression. As the text says, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. Now, here's some facts about anxiety and depression. Anxiety disorder is the most common mental illness in the United States for those 18 and older. Number two is depression, and number three is post-traumatic stress disorder. Anxiety disorder affects approximately 18.1% of the population. That's nearly, not quite, but nearly 20% of the United States population that would be suffering today from anxiety, okay? Now, here's something else. Of that 20% of the population, a little over a third, 37% are only seeking treatment. That means nearly two-thirds are not seeking treatment, okay? And depression, the second most leading uh, mental illness in the United States, is one of the most misunderstood mental illnesses and affecting over 17 million Americans every year. Now, here's the question. Is there a link between anxiety and depression? The Bible points to that link. But let's hear what the science has to say to confirm this insight that the scriptures offer to us today. This is an article that I found online. The article is titled, The Relationship Between Anxiety and Depression by Thomas Tiornahoe. And the website where you can find this is at heartgrovehospital.com forward slash relationship hyphen anxiety hyphen depression. So anxiety goes beyond normal nervousness or worry. Okay? Anxiety is different than what you and I may experience when we have a concern about something. For example, 
If you're preparing a dinner for a guest, it could be your husband's boss, it could be your best friend who's coming and you haven't seen them in 20 years and you want to prepare their favorite dish, okay? You might be worried whether the dish is going to turn out okay. Is that fair to understand? Okay, you might be worried. And the reason you're worried is because you're wondering if you have enough ingredients. You're wondering if you put enough seasoning in. The way, however, to remedy that worry or that concern would be to simply look in the cupboards to see if you have enough to start with. Or to check your refrigerator to see if you have enough ingredients to start with. And if you don't, then either change the recipe, you know, choose a different meal to prepare, or make a list of the ingredients that you want, go shopping for them, and bring them home and there and prepare. And therefore, the problem that you were worried about is easily resolved. But anxiety is different. Anxiety is not like your normal worry or your concern. The way to put worry to rest, like I said, would be to solve the problem that you're concerned about. If you feel like you're worried that you're going to arrive late, start off 10 minutes earlier to your destination. But anxiety is more of a paralyzing fear. Okay? It's a fear that you have that is so severe that it really just arrests you in your ability to carry out the duty that you want to achieve. Okay? For example, let's say you want to go out with friends, okay? But because of a social anxiety, when your friends call on you and you say, yes, I'll pencil it in into my calendar, next weekend we will go out. But as the days go by in the week, and as the clock ticks down to that final hour when you have to meet that appointment, guess what you end up doing? Anxiety takes over, and you end up calling your friend and saying, you know, Sally, or you know, Joe, I'm not going to be able to make it tonight. And you end up coming up with some excuse, however true or false it may be, and you say, I'm not coming. And instead of enjoying that social outing, you sit at home. And then what happens, as the article states, they, uh, those who suffer from anxiety disorders recognize they have these fears, and they have difficulty in stopping those fears from taking over. And Teodaho points out that feelings of losing inner control haunt them, and this is part of the anxiety and the angst that they feel that becomes one of the entryways for depression. Does everybody understand the sequence? And so, when we go to the scripture, with that scientific research and understanding, the passage of scripture makes more sense. Anxiety in the heart of man does what? Causes depression. Okay? Now, exploring this link further, Chorho adds the following points. Those who from, suffer from anxiety are at a higher risk for developing depression. Because if they don't address the issue, the initial fear, 
then it spirals out of control and leads to depression. Nearly half of those suffering from major depression also struggle with severe and persistent anxiety. So these kind of go like two hands and they kind of lock in to each other. And people who are depressed often feel anxious and worried and as the research shows, one can easily trigger the other with anxiety usually preceding depression. And that's exactly what Solomon wrote about. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. Now, here's a question. If anxiety is a mental illness, why does the Bible then say anxiety in the heart of man causes depression? Do you understand the question? The heart is in the chest cavity, and the mind, what we think with, is between our two ears in our head. What is diagnosed a mental illness, we think that is taking place in what we would call the brain. But the Bible says anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. So, is the Bible really speaking a truth? Here? Well, let's consider this. Although the word heart in the Bible is used quite frequently, it is rarely used in reference to the literal heart organ, the pump that goes on pumping blood every minute, every hour of every day. Okay? Here is an example, however, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 37, where it is used in reference to the heart organ, the organ of your body that is in your chest cavity. And here's the context. David was running from Saul, and in the process of while he was fleeing from Saul, he had some of his men who were watching the sheep and the flocks of Nabal. Nabal was married to Abigail, and Nabal was a very wealthy man. He had large flocks, and he was, uh, David's men were watching over them and helping protect them. And it came time for the season where the sheep were being sheared, and the shepherds in those days would have a big festival, and they would celebrate. And so David's men were hungry, and he thought, David thought it was fair and reasonable to ask Nabal and Nabal's men, can you share some of your bounty with us? Uh, we're just merely asking to be fed, and it's only fair and reasonable because what we did was we protected you. And so they approached Nabal's shepherds, and Nabal's shepherds approached Nabal with it, and Nabal said, yes, no, you're not getting any of our food. It's not going to happen. And when David's men came back to report this to David, David said, strap on your swords. We're going to take care of this. And they went marching off. And the men of Nabal heard what David was about to do, and so they didn't go back to Nabal. They instead went to Abigail and said, listen, Missy, uh, this is what's going down. The whole entire camp is going to be wiped out unless you do some quick thinking. 
And she did some quick thinking. She made some food and sent it on ahead of her. And then she went and pleaded with David and said, please be merciful. Don't do what you are about to do. And David backed off to his credit. But what happened with Nabal is that he went on feasting. And his feast lasted a while. And eventually what happens is what's described here. It says, so it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. Essentially, Nabal had a heart attack and he died. So, we have that example in scripture where the heart refers to the organ that pumps blood in your body. That's what it's describing here. But there's other passages of scripture that speak of the heart, but uses it in a context that we can discern that it's speaking of more than just an organ. It's speaking about really the seat of reasoning and the ability to make decisions. And so what the Bible is telling us is that the word that is frequently translated for a heart can also refer to more than just the human organ. That it can refer, refer to the, the mind as well. For example, Genesis chapter 20 verse 5, this is the story when Abraham and his wife Sarai went to Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20 and uh, Abimelech thought that Sarah was a good wife material. And even though Sarah was married to Abraham, and Abraham had said to Abimelech, well, she is my sister, and I'm her brother, and so Abimelech, not uh, thinking that there was any harm in taking this woman, took her to be his wife and was ready to have relations with her, when he was warned by God in a dream. And here we catch the conversation where Abimelech is addressing God. And Abimelech says, did he not say to me, referring to Abraham, she is my sister. And she, meaning Sarah, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my what? My heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. So what Abimelech is referring to is that in the integrity of my moral capacity to make this decision, I'm innocent. And in that context, God, of course, responds and says, listen, I know this, but still you need to back off and uh, because this man is a prophet and, and you just need to honor this. Okay? And so Abimelech does. Here we have another example, Exodus chapter 8, verse 32. The story is very familiar. The children of Israel had been uh, called by God to lead Egypt and to leave Egypt and Moses had been raised up to deliver them from this bondage and so Moses had interceded on behalf of the children of Israel going to Pharaoh and asking and requesting that the children of Israel leave and what began was this kind of seesaw uh, tug of war discussion between Pharaoh and Moses and Moses kept calling down plagues that God gave him permission to do because Pharaoh wasn't honoring the request. 
And here it says in Exodus 8, verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. So what Pharaoh was doing was he was making a decision in his mind. Basically, he was becoming more and more stubborn. He was refusing to let God's people go. But yet, as Moses records this event for us, he describes this taking place in the heart of Pharaoh, that Pharaoh was hardening his heart. Okay? Now, that leads us back to our scripture reading, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. So when we understand this context, that really from a modern medical science perspective, the Bible is 100% accurate. It's not inaccurate when it says anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. Rather, we, if we understand the context, the heart is not necessarily referring always 100% of the time to the organ that pumps blood. It's referring often to the seat of emotions, okay? And fear is one of the human emotion. And fear is what leads to anxiety, okay? Now, let me summarize the major points of what I've said so far. Number one, the medical community is recognizing that anxiety and depression are on the rise. Number two, anxiety and depression are the top two most common mental illnesses occurring in the United States today. And number three, anxiety and depression frequently follow each other in that order, which is exactly what we find in our scripture reading today. Now, that's the sobering bad news. <clears throat> Here's some good news, though. Amen? The good news is that anxiety and depression are highly treatable. They are very treatable. So if individuals who are here today or who are watching online and you recognize these symptoms, I'm not giving you medical advice. I'm merely saying that anxiety and depression are highly treatable, okay? They can be corrected. And here's how we know. Because the Bible says anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. Amen? A good word has the ability and the power to make our hearts glad that are sunk down with anxiety and depression. Here's how it works. A good word has the power and the ability to challenge our anxiety. We have to understand anxiety is caused by fear, and fear is uh, brought about by the imagination that wanders. We tend to borrow from tomorrow's troubles, essentially. And that's what creates our fears and then feeds our anxiety. <clears throat> but the Bible tells us that a good word has the power to challenge our anxieties. It has the ability to do this. A good word has the power to challenge our, our anxieties because our anxieties are based on our unrealized fears. And this anxiety or fear is not based on reality. Okay? Fear 
and anxiety that feeds it, or the, the anxiety that is fed by fear, is not based on reality. Okay? But rather, we perceive reality, and we perceive reality as it will be if we follow through on a particular action. Now, therapists and psychiatrists and psychotherapists will use therapy to help correct this negative behavior, this negative thinking, by introducing healthy ways, healthy ways to perceive reality. Because there's unhealthy ways to perceive reality, and then there are healthy ways to perceive reality, rather than unhealthy ways. And this method of therapy is recognized or titled cognitive behavior therapy. Anybody ever heard of that before? Cognitive behavior therapy. Here's how Wikipedia defines it. Cognitive behavioral therapy is a psychosocial intervention that aims to reduce symptoms of various mental health conditions, primarily what? Depression and anxiety disorders, okay? Depression and anxiety disorders are treated primarily through cognitive behavior therapy, okay? Now, that's the definition for uh, cognitive behavior therapy, and here's how it works, okay? This is from the Oxford Dictionary. Cognitive behavioral therapy is a type of psychotherapy in which negative patterns of thought about the self and the world are challenged in order to alter unwanted behavior patterns or treat mood disorders such as depression, okay? And so cognitive behavior therapy is a combination, actually, of two strains of psychotherapy that were developed in the second half of the 20th century. Um, rational emotive behavior therapy was developed by Albert Ellis in the 1950s, and cognitive therapy was developed by Aaron T. Black in the 1960s. And these two models were combined to become what we now know and call and identify as cognitive behavior therapy. What's so fascinating about all of this is that the underlying principles of cognitive behavior therapy can be found in the writings of sacred scripture some 3,000 years earlier. Can I hear an amen? amen? Because the Bible tells us anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. Because a good word has the power to bring about a correction in how we perceive reality. Okay? Remember, a bad word can induce anxiety, but a good word can bring about a healthy perception of reality. Now, I believe that God revealed this principle to Solomon because it contains a universal truth. Lies and falsehood make people into prisoners. Lies and falsehood have the power to make individuals into prisoners. Whereas truth has the power to liberate the individual. And that's what we see here on the scripture. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. And what we can say from that is that 
uh, the individual then becomes a prisoner. A prisoner of what? Of their own belief system that they've been lied to and they've told themselves this lie over and over and now they believe it. Okay? But truth has the power to liberate the individual. And in fact, the Bible calls, has a word for good news. The New Testament in particular is called the gospel. The gospel. Okay? And so this idea, uh, this has application for how we relate to our fellow man in a variety of social settings. Uh, when we try to foster relationships with classmates, co-workers, neighbors, etc., how we understand our own view of reality can affect how we interact with our neighbor, or a classmate, or a friend, or a relative. Okay? But, our anxieties can also affect how we view God. It impacts how we view God. There are people who many refuse to accept the good news because of how they fear God will treat them if they don't accept it. In fact, some people just blatantly say, I'm not going to believe in a God that chooses to burn me in hell forever and ever if I choose to not believe in him. And just on that reasoning alone, one could say, well, I can understand that fear. However, that fear creates anxiety, and that anxiety is caused, I would believe, by a falsehood about God. Let me give you an example. And I'm not going to directly address the issue of uh, eternally burning hell. That's for another time. But I am going to address a fear that will be raised in the last days of Earth's history by men and women, possibly by people who are even watching today or listening today. Here's what I mean. If we go to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6, and we read the closing verses of this chapter, verses 16 and 17, it describes a scenario on planet Earth. Of course, this is in prophetic vision that John is describing here. And it says here that the great men of Earth, the mighty men, the captains and the generals and the, the, every slave and every free man, they call for the rocks and the mountains and say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And here's the reason why. For the great day of his wrath has come, and they ask the question, who is able to stand? Now, let me back up here a little bit. Tell me something. Have you ever seen an angry lamb. No. Lambs usually don't get angry. Okay? Lambs <clears throat> are pretty happy looking creatures. 
In fact, uh, they're very cheerful looking. They're very sweet and innocent. And I would say quite charming, right? They can win your heart in a real quick minute. But yet, the Bible is telling us that in the last moments of Earth's history as we know it, <clears throat> there will be people calling for the rocks to fall on them because they would rather be have their life snuffed out than have to face what they describe as the wrath of a lamb. Now, the Bible, in particular, the book of Revelation, uses a lot of symbolism. And the lamb, in this case, is referring to none other than Jesus. Okay? And we know that from the Bible because the Gospel of John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 29, and I don't have the verse for you, but in John chapter 1, verse 29, when Jesus is being introduced for the first time in his public ministry by John the Baptist, it's John the Baptist who points him out and the throne, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus became the sacrificial lamb to remove your sins and my sins and the sins of the entire world. And we're going to explore this just a little bit more detail in a few more minutes. But what we really have to understand is that what's fundamentally at stake in this question that's being asked is that these individuals, the great men of the earth, the mighty men, the captains, the free and the slave, in other words, those who have not accepted the free grace that Christ offers, <clears throat> but they are wrestling essentially in its most fundamental point is the character of God. They misunderstand the character of God. They believe that it's not possible to stand before God. But what we have to do is we have to understand what is the character of God like. And if we go to the very first book of the Bible, we can see this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, this is at the conclusion of the creation account. The narrator describes what God accomplished. It says, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Very good. In other words, what God created at the conclusion, when God finished the creative work he had done in creation week. He didn't just say, ah, this is mediocre, it'll be good enough. He didn't say, ah, yeah, I did all right, but the Bible says he pronounced it not just good, but when he came to the conclusion of creation week, he said it is very good. Very good. Now here's the question. Who did he do this for? For himself? Or for someone else? For someone else. Because if we go and look at the creation week account, the last thing he did in creation was he created woman. 
on that last day of creation week on Friday, he created man and woman, but the last creative act he did was created woman. And then if we want to go even a little bit further, he created the institution of marriage. Okay? And yes, though maybe some who would say, yeah, but he also created the Sabbath. And yes, he did that too. But the Sabbath was in existence even prior to that. But in creation week, what he did was he created mankind. And listen to me carefully, he did all of that. All from the first day of the week, all the way up to that sixth day of the week, he did it for you and for me. And when he finished doing it, he said it was very good. Now, somebody who does something that's very good for you and me, would you say they're a bad person or a pretty good person? They're a good person. In fact, we would say that they have your interest at heart, your best interest at heart, and we can fairly say that they love us. Would that be a fair assessment? Yes, they would. They would love us. And in fact, this is confirmed in this particular passage, probably the most common, uh, known, well-known Bible verse in all of Scripture, John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When somebody gives something to you, it's usually because they love you. Unless they gave you COVID. And then that was an accident. But the idea being is that God gave not only what he gave to us in creation week because he loves us, but when we messed up, when we sinned, when we rebelled against God, God said, I love you so much, I want to bring you back to me, and I'm going to do this through the only means possible, and that is by revealing myself to you in such a personal way that you will be able to have a relationship with me, and that is done through my son Jesus. God gave his only begotten son to us to redeem us from our sins because he loves us, not because he hates us. Not because he wants to destroy us. In fact, the very next verse, John chapter 3, verse 17, says this. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In other words, your salvation is not dependent upon you, but upon what God has done for you. And the reason God has done this for you is because he wants you to be saved. He doesn't want you to be lost. <clears throat> he loves you. And he wants a relationship with you. Now, to get a fuller understanding of this, and how this applies to this fundamental question that's raised in the last days in the book of Revelation, we have to go a little further and explore it in John chapter 3. So let's go to the very next verse. And here's what it says. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, here's where some of our friends 
who have a hard time accepting the gospel have some difficulty. Because they look at this verse and they say, see, if you believe in him, you're not condemned, but if you be don't believe, you are condemned. And what are you condemned to? You're condemned to eternally burning hell. Now I said I'm not going to address that particular issue. But let's stop and think for a minute. Is hell even mentioned in this verse? No. It's not mentioned at all. So we don't have to borrow from tomorrow's troubles to trouble us in understanding this verse. But let's seek to understand what is really the fundamental issue in this condemnation. Because the text is very clear. God sent his son not to condemn, but to save. And it's added here, he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has chosen not to believe. Now, why do people choose not to believe? Well, let's go to verse 90. And it says this. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You see, folks, people reject God not because of God's character. They reject him because they love evil more than they love God. They love evil more than they love God. And the Bible is using a metaphor. They love darkness rather than light. They love evil rather than goodness. And God is good. The Bible says what God created, how could a God who creates good be evil? Right? That doesn't, that's, logically that doesn't make any sense. Which brings us back to that last question, or one of the last questions that's asked in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> On your left-hand side, it says, they cry out, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? That is the question of the unsaved, the unredeemed. Those who have chosen to reject God because they love darkness rather than light, they loved evil rather than good. And God is good. But what's interesting about this particular passage is that the very next chapter, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 in particular, answers that very question. Who is able to stand? Who is able to stand before the, the Lamb? And here's what Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says to answer that question. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before whom? The Lamb. But what made the difference? Instead of being covered with rocks, they were clothed 
with white robes, and they had palm branches in their hands. And if we were to go on, we would find that they were singing Alleluia and praise to God. Because what they say in that passage is salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. They came to recognize they received the Lamb as their Savior because they recognized that their own character was not worthy of standing. But they also recognized the good news, and that is that God provides a way for us to be able to stand before a holy God. I can't answer for you. I can only answer for myself. But I want to stand before a holy God. Amen. Is that what you want? Amen. Amen. If you want that, just, just raise your hand, folks. Just raise your hand. Amen. 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 And for those who are watching, just send us, put an emoji of a raised hand or a, two hands together or something. Just just acknowledge it, just say an amen, I want to stand there, I want to be before the Lamb's throne. Because, folks, uh, the Bible gives us some answers. And uh, science also gives us answers on how to treat anxiety. The good news is that science affirms what the Bible says, that a good word can make the heart glad. It's my prayer that all of us would have our hearts lifted up with the good news that's been heard today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your goodness, for helping to uh, address our fears, our anxieties, yes, our depression. There are many who are suffering today because they don't understand one of the most fundamental questions in all of human history, and that is, what is God like? The Bible tells us. The Bible says it's God's word. It's inspired by him to reveal him. Because God wants to be known. He wants us to know him. He wants to have a relationship with us. Father, I pray that your peace would be upon every heart gathered around this listening of this particular message. Maybe some will hear it a month from now or two years from now, who knows. But I pray that as they listen, that they would be blessed. That they would be able to be liberated by the good news, freed from their anxiety and their fear, and given a heart of hope and peace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.